Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help you bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and just figure out life. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult services, or at our general services Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you enjoy. Amen, amen. All right, you guys may be seated. All right, well, hey, I want to welcome you guys to Young Adults, and if we haven't met before, my name is Matt, and uh, just a dude that works here, and a guy with a mic, but I'm excited that you guys are here, and uh, we are in a brand new series, or I'm sorry, week three of a series, I'm starting a new series this week for something else, um, entitled Hot Topics, and it's kind of the subtitle, is Conversations on Controversy. Now, it's not just because I like offending people, it's a spiritual gift, um, I think it's important that we have conversations about kind of tough challenging kind of topics, moral topics that are happening through um, our, our culture, right? And so I think it's important that we look at uh, certain kind of, certain topics that are happening in our culture and ask, what, what, is, what does Scripture kind of teach on this? Does, does, how should a Christian feel about this? And so we have been looking through six tough topics, three so far, and we're going to continue to go through maybe three more in weeks to come, on kind of challenging topics that Christians and non-Christians um, kind of have maybe differing views or maybe similar views on certain, uh, certain topics. Now, week one, if you were here, um, I gave you what I believe was philosophical and scientific evidence on why the pro-life arguments, I think, are superior to the pro-choice one. I didn't even use the Bible. If you were here, I didn't even pick up the Bible and say, God says, I use purely scientific evidence. I gave 10 specific arguments that the pro-choice side makes, um, and then we, we, we counteracted that with some pro-life arguments. Now, if you weren't here and you want to listen to it, you can go to our podcast. It's just SCG, or Seacoast Grace Young Adults on Apple or Android podcast app, and uh, you can listen to what we talked about week one. Now, week two, we talked about the purpose of sex and sexuality and marriage, and today we're picking up that conversation again. But before we hop into where we're going for today, I want you guys to kind of turn and discuss this question. When was the last big argument you got into, and what was it about, all right? So hopefully it wasn't like, during worship or something, right? But what was the last big argument you got in and what was it about, right? All right, so I'm gonna give you guys 30 seconds, turn to some people that are around you. Ready, set, go. All right, all right, bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. All right, so here's the deal, right? Um, My hope today is we're not getting into an argument. I'm going to present something today that someone here is not going to agree with me, and that is 100% okay, all right? It's okay to disagree, all right? And uh, here's kind of the question, because my hope and prayer is not to get into an argument with somebody. It never is. Even when I'm with coffee with somebody, it's never to like, here's the thing. I'm more interested in winning people than winning arguments. If you're in a relationship or you're married, you definitely know there's a world difference between winning an argument and, and winning the person, right? You can win the argument and lose the person. That's not what I'm interested to do. Keep that in the back of your minds as we go through what we're going to be talking about today. Now, look, whenever we go into something that has the capacity to be, um, to create an argument or whenever we're having a conversation about a controversial topic, I think we need to kind of pause and ask ourselves a question. And if you were here week one, I also asked. Here's the question. Am I interested in what is true and right or what is popular and pleasurable? I'll say it again. Am I interested in what's true and right or popular and pleasurable? Now, I asked this question because my time as a pastor, which is like, I don't know, 10 or so years, I've met a lot of people and took a lot of people out to coffee and lunch and had conversations with people with differing views of me. It's one of my fa- favorite things to do is to sit with somebody who doesn't believe what I believe. I love it. And so in my time as a pastor, I've realized that most people would classify themselves as righteous and, let's say, morally virtuous in some sense of the way. But as you sit and you talk with people, it's going to become quickly obvious that they are more 
interested and concerned with views that are popular and pleasurable than they are good and truthful. See, many people will give you reasons for their views. They may even convince themselves, right, that they have an authentic interest in morality, what is right, what is true, what is good. However, when you confront people's kind of views maybe with logic in some way, their hearts become exposed for who they really are and what they really believe as they search around, right, for half-truths to justify their views as they simply ignore contrary points that you brought up. And instead of debating and refuting them, they just kind of ignore them. Now, soon, people are often stripped of the appearance of being maybe moral as the evidence for their views may be diminished, and they become angry, and instead of confronting their own beliefs and ideas, they start to confront you or the person that has a differing view and idea than they do. See, here's what I've learned. In, most, in short, most people really aren't kind of truth seekers. They're comfort seekers, and comfortability is going to never lead you really to truth. So I'm going to say the question again as we hop into where we're going today. The question is this, am I, are you, are we interested in what's true and right or what's popular and pleasurable? Tonight, here's our big topic. Tonight, we're going to be talking about gay marriage from a biblical worldview. So if you're not a believer, this message isn't going to maybe give you much substance. It's not a sociological study on the impacts, um, on pros and cons for that. I'm going to get, present to it as a, from, I'm a pastor, so I'm going to present it from Biblically speaking, what is God's view of marriage? We kind of talked about this last week. We're going to pick it up to today more specifically, not just on what marriage is, but what is something called natural marriage? You're going to hear me talk about that a lot. Now, whenever we talk about this issue, we risk, especially in the culture that we live in today, we risk kind of being called like intolerant and maybe a bigot or hateful or whatever it may be. And so there's actually a question when I'm sitting with somebody and they say, hey, Matt, what do you think about gay marriage? I go, I'm so appreciative that you care about my opinion. I'm going to ask you a question first, and here's why I do this, because I don't want to get into an argument with somebody. My natural, def- my, my natural kind of like disposition is probably to get in an argument, so I have to remind myself I'm in a conversation with somebody, not an argument. I care about this person. And so this question that I'm about to ask you, it's kind of a, a few questions, helps kind of move the conversation towards a conversation and away from an argument. It doesn't get people's defenses up. Here's the question. Hey, do you consider yourself a tolerant or intolerant person? Hey, before I, like, we hop into where we're going today, would you consider yourself a tolerant or an intolerant person? Do you respect differing points of views, or do you condemn others that have maybe convictions that are different from yours? Now, no one's going to go, like, yeah, I'm a bigot, too. That's not, no one does that, right? And so chances are they'll say, yeah, I'm a pretty tolerant person. And so in that, that shifts the conversation to, from a conversation, no longer are their defenses up, and we're going to get into some, like, intense argument, right? Now, here's the most important thing, though, as we're thinking about conversations and arguments With this topic and most topics, we are dealing with human beings that are created in the image of God. Therefore, they are all people, right, are deserving of of dignity and respect because they are created in the image of God. And as Christians, we are called to love people. Yes, even people that we disagree with, maybe even more than the people we agree with. And I've talked about this before, right, but love means to be a truth teller. What is love? I've shared this definition of love with you before. Love at its core, at its heart, is to bring people into a right standing before God. That has the capacity sometimes to be a pretty uncomfortable and hard thing to do. I'm going to give you one more question I want you to turn and discuss. It's going to set us up for where we're headed today. Here's the question. I want you to think way back to high school. For some of you guys, that was four or five weeks ago. For others of us, it was a long time ago, all right? So I want you to think back to high school. Here's the question. Um, how relevant was this topic of gay marriage? Think about it. What were teachers, what was the media doing, different media mediums and outlets? What was happening in the world back when you were in high school, however long ago that was for you? Was it popular? Was it celebrated? Was it reinforced? Did you gain social capital? Whatever it may be, all right? So I'm going to give you a minute, maybe 30 seconds or so. Turn to a neighbor. Ready, set, go.
All right, bring it up, bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. All right, so think way back to when you are in high school, which for some of you guys probably wasn't that long ago. For me, it was a ways back. Raise your hand if you would say this was a highly relevant topic. People were talking about it. It was in the world, teachers, whatever it may be. All right, raise your hand if it was not a relevant topic. Sick. Anyone that's over 25? Perfect. I'm 29, right? So you can put your hands down. Yeah, I'll be honest with you, right? So I'm a youth pastor as well. I do junior high and high school. And... Uh, it is overwhelmingly relevant in the last handful of years, right? And back when I was in high school, which I graduated 11 years ago, which I don't feel like I'm that old, but I guess I am. Um, I graduated, uh, yeah, in June 2011, and uh, it wasn't, like, at all popular. Like, I knew of a few gay people that were at my school, but it wasn't, like, talked about. People weren't really coming out. It wasn't celebrated. It wasn't really talked about in the media as much as it is today. In fact, Barack Obama didn't come out until 2012, I think, uh, in, in, in affirming an affirmation of uh, same-sex marriage, right? And so it wasn't, really a t- it wasn't really that popular, but you can't even go on anything today, whether it be Disney or Disneyland or on you know, Netflix, and it not be in Hulu, and it being talked about, right? So culture's changing rapidly, right, towards the, the, the acceptance of this type of stuff. Now, one thing that I've learned is that back when I was in high school, and I've been thinking about it this week, is like I said, it wasn't celebrated. People weren't bi- like building their identities on it, and it wasn't, it wasn't like this overall world-shaping worldview like it is today. A lot has changed in the 10 or 11 years or so since I've graduated high school. See, culture's moving rapidly away from historic and underst- understandings of gender and sexuality, I think at a, at a rate that no one could have like really predicted. I mean, just five years ago, five years ago, gender dysphoria was classified as a mental illness in medical journals five years ago. Just 10 years ago, there was no such thing as a smartwatch. Just 12 years ago, there was no such thing as iPads, just notepads, right? Um, 30 years ago, not for us, but for some, 30 years ago um, is the difference between Elvis and Eminem. 40 years, for some people, was the difference between Jim Crow laws in the South and the first black American president. I mean, a lot, is, a lot can happen in just a few short years. In fact, all the way up into the year 1990, which I was born in 92, the American Psychiatric Association considered homosexuality a mental disorder. That's 32 years ago. In 1996, the then Bill Clinton, well, in 1996, only 27% of the U.S. population supported same-sex marriage. In fact, that very same year, the Clintons signed into act something called the DAMA Act, the Defense of Marriage Act, where he's instructed all federal organizations to recognize marriage between a man and a woman. And then in 2013, approval of same-sex marriage jumped from 53, for most people, and 73% amongst young adults, millennials. See, culture is moving quickly, and this is the reason that I want to talk about it. So you're asking, why am I sitting at a church with a pastor talking about this issue? And if you're new here, by the way, we don't do this every single, like, this isn't every single Sunday night. Like, we're going to pick a controversial topic, and we're going to talk about it, right? We're in a series talking about this stuff. But why are we talking about this? Here's why. Because Christians who fail to critically think about Important cultural issues will stay confused and ill-equipped to live out their faith in a world that doesn't enforce their values any longer. There was a time, maybe for our parents or grandparents, where they're like, like you gained the social capital for being a follower of Christ. It, you, you put that on your resume and you, fought, you were seen as trustworthy and you were seen as a person of character. That's no longer the case. So we have, the burden is on us to be good, loving people, but also be intelligent people. And this is the reason I'm talking about this. Because likewise, a church that hides from cultural conflicts, like most churches do, most churches are not talking about this stuff. Whenever I talk about this stuff, our, our, our attendance dwindles. And some of you probably won't come back because I'm talking about this stuff. The reason that we're talking about this stuff is I feel it is my commission by God to equip us to have these type of conversations with the world that are around us. 
Because a church that hides from cultural conflicts will become captive to culture and will abandon its people to be victims of bad and unbiblical ideas. In fact, after Roe versus Wade, the decision in 1973, it was kind of that many people thought that the, the abortion question was finally settled. But to the contrary, the pro-life movement over decades grew stronger and stronger and stronger until it was reversed just last week, which is crazy to think about. Our parents were more pro-choice than, the, than their kids were. And the, one of the reasons being, and you ask why, how did this happen, is because the people who led this movement developed sound arguments that convinced the culture to change their views. The marriage question demands no less of us today. So here's where we're headed today. I think I have a slide for this. Same-sex marriage should be legal if... Marriage is only a way that the government acknowledges feelings of love and affection between two people. If that's all it is, then yes, it would be, it would be terrible. It would be to discriminate, to not allow two people into this type of union. But what if marriage is more about just the feelings of love and affection between two people? In other words, what if it matters in marriage who is in love, not to just they are in love? This seems true, right? Because you can't, like, marry a seven-year-old. And you also can't marry like a family member. I mean, you can in Alabama, I think, but another story. I'm just kidding. Um, so there is a level of discrimination that's already acceptable. I mean, not all discrimination is actually bad, right? For example, I can't get into Costco at 10 a.m. Even though I was trying to get toilet paper during COVID and eggs and milk, I still couldn't get into Costco at senior hour, which is like 9 and 10, right? I also can't go around getting military discounts or social, I can't, I can't start collecting on social security. I would love to. Why can't I? Well, one, I'm not a senior citizen. I don't carry an AARP card, and I'm not, a mil- I'm not a veteran. I never served in our military, right? So I cannot, I don't have the essential qualifications to enact those privileges. By the way, you hear often like the objection, well, they really love each other, right? So it's okay. Never once when we went to the, the, the county clerk office, the courtroom to get our marriage certificate, like everyone that is getting married needs to get one, did they ever ask, okay, do you guys really love each other? Put it to the test. Like, it was like, kiss her, and I'll, I'll, I'll determine. You know, that's not it, right? The, the government doesn't care if you guys are actually in love. Never once did they ask us that. And if love was the factor, I could marry anything and anyone. Underage, incest, whatever it would be, right? So before we, get, before we ask what is marriage, or before we, we, we can kind of determine who can get married, the question that we have to ask is, what is marriage? That's the fundamental question here. Like, in week one, I gave you what, the question was, what is the unborn? Not about the rights and all that type of stuff, but the question, the most important question in the abortion argument is what is the unborn? Well, the question that we need to be going through today is what is marriage? That's the central question in this debate. The writer T.S. Eliot says this, I think I have a slide for you guys, is this. When looking at something and trying to figure out what it is, we need to ask ourselves two questions. What is it for? What can it do? What is it for? What can it do? Because purpose determines function. The why needs to determine before deciding the what. So the only way, right, to know what we, should, what we should and shouldn't do with marriage, like whether to expand it to include same-sex couples or to restrict it, is to first answer the question, what is marriage? Here's the truth, right? The truth is every definition of marriage in, uh, excludes someone already, underaged, insects, or to marry like an object. Like no one's getting married to their childhood bike, right? So there's, there's already like the, the discriminatory uh, idea and definition in marriage already. So let me quickly kind of give you um, a definition of marriage a biblical one that comes from scripture. It's this. Marriage is an institution created by God where he defined it between one man and one woman in a one flesh union for one lifetime. If you weren't here last week, you don't remember, you don't have an idea of what one flesh means. I'm going to re-talk about it in a second. Here's kind of the idea. We can recognize his understandings because we don't have the authority to define something we didn't create. If God created something, 
and he is as Scripture says he is, then we don't get the authority to define something. Rather, we can only discover his definition for something, like an archaeological dig in some sense of the way. Here's what this means. Marriage is established by God. The state only has the power to recognize it. It doesn't have the power to create something that it didn't create in the first place. In short, here's what I believe. Uh, um, scripture communicates to us that we can only discover God's description. We do not have the authority to redefine something that we didn't create. By the way, if you're an atheist in this room, um, I'm what I'm hyped you're here, but if you're an atheist in this room or you ever come into contact with an atheist who believes in homosexuality, their worldview demands heterosexual relationships. Why? Because there is a 100% mortality rate for 100% people that have ever lived always, and therefore we need replacements. Homosexual relationships cannot create replacements for society and therefore cannot ensure the survival of our species. I mean, for example, Elon Musk, the reason he's got like nine kids and they're all named like R2-D2 or something, um, one of the reasons, he's, he's like, I watched this thing the other day, the reason that he had like seven or nine kids or whatever is because he's so worried that we, we don't have a, 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 a birth rate that's going up. So if someone's an atheist, their worldview demands heterosexual relationships, not homosexual ones. Remember, not what is popular and pleasurable, what is true and what is right. And so what does scripture say about this, right? I mean, after all, if we are Christians and I'm making a presupposition that some of us in this room are followers of Christ, the Christian, the biggest thing that we need to know is that there's a God who designed us a specific way, but he also designed us to live a very specific way and that there's an objective purpose for things like sex, sexuality, and yes, even marriage. We talked about that last week. But the very first thing that we need to learn in the Bible is that God created. And we don't ever create something that doesn't have an intended purpose first or a reason for its existence and a manual on how that thing operates, right? And so scripture affirms that there is a purpose for human sexuality. There is a purpose for marriage and a manual on how it's supposed to operate and what it's supposed to be used for. Follow with me. It's going to be kind of a recap for this last week in the book of Genesis. I think I have the verses for you. It says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If you have your Bibles, highlight that. So God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the first chapter in the Bible, in Genesis, which literally translates the beginning, God made human beings, and gender is an essential characteristic of what it means to be human. Adam and Eve, right, were given the command to cultivate the earth and fill the earth with other image bearers, i.e., there was a commandment that God, like, came to Adam and Eve and says, I want you to have sex. Like, it wasn't like one, one day God looked down from heaven and opened the clouds and they were doing, having sex. He's like, what are you guys doing? He wasn't freaking out. Like, like, that's not how it worked, right? He created the very anatomies that were needed and complementarian anatomies that were needed for that act, for the whole procreation act to happen, right? And so I'm a youth pastor, and so I often talk about God's commandments, this, that, and whatever it is. Never once I've ever heard a junior high or high school student be angry that God commanded people to have sex sometime a long time ago, right? They complain about not being able to do this and this, whatever. Never that, right? Follow with me in Genesis 2, 24. It says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Highlight that. I want you to notice the pattern here. This is before there was another human being ever created. When this verse, when God spoke this to Adam and Eve, there was not another human being other than Adam and Eve, just those two people. And so there's a pattern that this man will leave his father and his mother and is joined to his wife. And it was talking about the future because Adam and Eve didn't have biological earthly parents. God created them. 
So what, the, what this means is that the ideal household is one man and one woman because that's what this young man and this woman are leaving to create a new household. He's talking about the future. Let me break this verse apart a little more. Highlight with me, therefore. This word signals that Moses, the author of Genesis, is asking us quickly to kind of pause and to think. And he turns to us post-fallen people, which is Genesis chapter 3, sin entered into our human story. And he says, now let me explain to you what God did so long ago that's normative for us to a day and should still speak with authority. It continues, it says, a man shall leave his father and his mother. In a culture of strong bonds, right, between the generations, this is striking. A man's primary human relationship and a woman's primary human relationship is no longer to their parents. They will break apart and and create a new union with with the utmost um, loyalty. It continues, it says, and hold fast to his wife. A man in marrying enfolds his wife into his heart. That's kind of the concept here. And at every level of his being, he becomes wholeheartedly devoted to her and to to her alone. It says, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh is essential to the biblical view of marriage. It means one mortal life fully shared. One mortal life fully shared. Two selfish me's learning to become one united us. That's kind of the idea here. Sharing one everything, one life, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one budget, one family, one mission, and so forth. No barriers, no hiding, no distance. Now total openness with total sharing and total solidarity until death do them part. There's another thing that's also being talked about here. The word I told you last week um, for one flesh is the word akkad. It's also the, used, the, the Hebrew word for sex in scripture. I want you to think about this for a moment. I said this last week. Every single biological function you can do as an individual, from breathing and blood circulation to digesting subway, whatever it may be, all of it, right? You're digesting all of your food, whatever it is. Every single one except procreation, right? Men and women have God-designed, complementarian, and anatomical designed parts to create other human beings that need two human beings of different genders and sexes to come together. That's what this one flesh union is talked about here. See, the sex difference is an imperative here, and it's, it's pretty straightforward all throughout Scripture. Marriage from the very beginning involves a man and a woman. In fact, the Hebrew word for a wife here is gender-specific. It, can, it, it cannot mean literally anything else other than a woman. In fact, there is no passage in Scripture that mentions marriage involving anything other than a man and a woman. Now, it's here that I kind of normally get a question. All right, well, maybe all what you said is true, but... Jesus never was asked about gay marriage. He didn't teach on gay marriage. So we don't really know what he would think about gay marriage. And the answer is that's not necessarily true. I'm going to go through a few verses in a second. But the truth is, this is because from every side of this argument, from the far left to the far right 2,000 years ago, they they weren't called Republicans and Democrats. They had a whole other different system that was created. But from every side of this argument, politically speaking, it was always seen as a gendered institution marriage was. And yes, he would have known of homosexual relationships. But what was new in our generation, but there was never a movement to redefine marriage. Why? Because everyone believed that marriage was a gendered institution. Everyone, from the far left to the far right. So you ask a question, okay, what does the Bible say then? The Bible doesn't speak of homosexual very, very often, but when it does, it always condemns it as a sin, like it condemns other things that are sinful. There are six primary passages in Scripture that talk about homosexuality and uh, that type of behavior. I'm going to give you a few. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 22, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It's an abomination. Leviticus 20, 13. If a man lies with a, 
if a man lies with the males or the woman, both of them are committed in abomination. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. Or, uh, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The word unrighteous, the word righteous means you have a right standing between God, a right relationship with God, and a right relationship with others. The word unrighteous means the opposite of that. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And the word homosexuality does not mean pederastry, which some people believe it meant. It's uh, it, where an older guy would have sex with a younger guy to bring him up in a pecking order in some sense of the way, to give him privileges in society. The word homosexuality means exactly what it means today. So I'm going to give you three objections that I often hear. I like to kind of keep this conversationally in some sense of the way. If I'm having coffee with somebody, I bring up these things. Here are the objections that I often hear. Objection one. Well, those laws, especially the ones in the Old Testament, like in the book of Leviticus, were written for another time and place. They're not written for today. And they'll go on to say things like, well, in the Old Testament, it also says you can't have shellfish. Do you like crab or lobster? Do you eat that? What about bacon? Do you eat bacon? There's certain provisions in the Old Testament where you're not allowed to eat certain foods, right? And they'll, they'll say, just as we kind of ignore those passages because of historical context, you can't pick and choose. We're going to do the exact same thing with dealing with homosexuality. And to be honest with you, it's a good objection if you don't know your Bible. Because it often does stump people. It stops them right in their tracks. Like, you're right, I do like bacon, and now I'm really confused. Well, there are three types of laws in the Old Testament. The first are geographically specific laws to the place of Israel. Do we live in Israel? The answer is no, we do not live in Israel. There are laws pertaining specifically in the Old Testament to the very place of Israel. Number two, there are Levitical and ritualistic laws. They are for the tribe of Aaron or the priesthood. Are we Jews? And am I a priest in Judaism? The answer is no. So there are laws that pertain to Israel specifically and to a very specific line of an Israelite, the tribe of Aaron, the Levite tribe. The Levites were the priests, the pastors of Judaism thousands of years ago. And then finally, there are moral laws. These are timeless. Why? Because they anchor themselves in God's character. And if God is immutable, that means unchanging. Therefore, the laws that he issues out are unchanging as well, and they are timeless, good for any time, any generation, and any place, geographically speaking as well. The ones pertaining to anything dealing with sex, marriage, anchor themselves in God's morality. And therefore, because God doesn't change, those laws don't change either, and they're equally relevant for us today. Objection number two I hear is, well, polygamy, that's having more than one wife or husband, in the Bible, isn't talked about either, right? And well, because polygamy isn't talked about in the Bible, and God doesn't say anything about that, then that necessarily could mean that homosexuality is okay. Well, the truth is the Bible does not endorse everything that it reports. I'll say it this way. Many passages are descriptive, not prescriptive. Descriptive like this is what was happening. David had a lot of uh, wives and prostitutes too. So did Solomon and a plethora of other people, Right? So it's descriptive, it's giving an account of what happened. It's not prescriptive saying, this is how you should now live your life. Objection number three, I was born this way. And so here I kind of just ask you a question. So because someone is born with certain dispositions, does that necessarily now make it morally okay to act out on all their intuitions? Right? Just because someone has maybe certain desires or is born a certain way, does that make now everything that they do morally acceptable and okay? The answer is no, of course not. There's been studies to talk about men have higher sex drives than women. One of the reasons is because testosterone. Should a man act on every sexual impulse that he has? No, of course not, right? Just because someone has a, is born genetically some way, that doesn't necessarily mean that now all of the acts that they do to engage that desire is now morally acceptable. Here's one that I don't, I, I, I would never give personally. 
I would never be sit over if someone was, was, was actually saying, hey, I'm gay, and I, this is not one I would give. Publicly, I'll, I'll give it because I'll, I'll define what I'm about to say. I read a study that talked about pedophilia. Is, is Certain people are studying it to think that that is an orientation that you could be born with. Now, because someone may or may not be attracted to the young, is that now morally okay for, that, for those relationships to happen? No, of course not. And by the way, there's no science worth its salt, scientists worth the salt, that'll say there is something like a gay gene that dispositionally makes them attracted to the same gender. Now, maybe, maybe not. That's actually truly irrelevant to, to this at all because just because someone is born some way doesn't necessarily mean uh, engaging in all of their desires is now morally acceptable and okay, right? Here's the truth. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin has affected our hearts and our minds, the neurochemistry of our brains, right? So there are people that, that struggle with clinical depression. They have to take medication. My wife shared her story where she was on uh, antidepressant medication for years, right? Um, people have different mental illnesses or whatever it may be because sin has affected every part of what it means to be a human being, the neurochemistry of our brain, our ability to rationally and cognitively think. It's even affected, yes, or even our sexual orientations. Sin has made this world not the way it's supposed to be. And so just as a junkyard isn't the best place to learn how to build a car, so too our cultural and our personal desires are not the best places for us to learn how to build marriages and, yes, even understand sexuality. See, since the very beginning, Jews and then Christians have understood that even our most sincere inclinations, affections, and urges, and even our ideas, though feel natural and normal to us, have been infected and broken and twisted by this thing called the fall. Listen to the way that Paul says in the book of Romans. I think I have a slide for you guys. Perfect. Uh, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for the women exchanged their natural function for which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. See, Romans here, and this is, this is explicitly talking about homosexuality. People say it is not talked about in the New Testament, have not read their New Testament. Romans also here addresses both male and female homosexuality and outlines the real problem. All sin's problem is this, rebellion against God and the rejection of his created order. And that's what homosexuality is. It's a rejection of God's created order. So if you're a Christian here and you have a differing view than me, often here I'll sit with people and be like, I'm a Christian, I am affirming for gay marriage. I'm like, okay, I want to give you three massive and huge problems for people who call themselves Christians and affirm gay marriage. Now I want to kind of pause for a second. I'm going to re-say this question, not what is popular and pleasurable, because this side is not popular. It is not pleasurable. It will not gain you influence in this world. It'll make you less popular. It'll make you hated. It'll be called things like being a bigot and intolerant and a plethora of other things like that. Not what is popular and pleasurable, what is true, good, and if you're a Christian, this speaks from the authority. We don't highlight our Bible with a Sharpie. <laughs> no, nah, that's not for me. No, I don't like that. We highlight it with a highlighter to illuminate and point things out to us, help steer our lives. We don't get to read this book with a, with a Sharpie. That's not the way that it works. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live with that, but not with this. That's not how this works. I mean, three big problems for affirming Christians. Problem number one, Jesus did address homosexuality. You can read in Matthew chapter 5 or in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1, or 4 through 6. Here he anchored marriage in the original context in Genesis chapter 2, which we just read. The teaching that marriage between one man and one woman. It says there, it says this, what God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, God is now the author of marriage. That's what he says. Therefore, he defines it. We can only discuss his definition. Problem two, Jesus is a member of the Godhead. We believe in, that, that, that there's one God that has existed eternally in three persons. How is this of relevance? 
You cannot separate Jesus from the Father or the Holy Spirit. Jesus was there in Sodom and Gomorrah. He wrote the book of Leviticus. He was there when it was being recorded. You cannot say that Jesus has never spoke about homosexuality unless you want to say that Jesus has a different will and desire than the other members of the Godhead. This is hugely problematic because then you have a breach in the Trinity that they have independent and different wills and you don't have Christianity at all anymore. Number three, the Bible is one story, not many stories. You can no more separate Jesus from Paul and Paul from Peter and Peter from the Father than you can separate Jesus from the Father or the Spirit. The Bible is not one story. I'm sorry, the Bible is one story, not many stories. The apostles teach that gay marriage is wrong, which means that Jesus would have affirmed that gay marriage was wrong as well. The Bible is overwhelmingly for natural marriage. Natural marriage, scripturally, is one man, one woman for a one flesh union for one lifetime. Now, let me kind of shift gears here for just a moment. Yes, homosexuality is a sin, but so is your addiction to pornography. Yes, homosexuality is a sin, but so is sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Yes, homosexuality is a sin, but so is the bitterness that you have in your heart towards others. I'm going to sum all of this up with this. Homosexuality no more sends someone to hell than heterosexuality sends someone to heaven. And that is the truth of this topic. See, what sends someone to hell is them not giving their lives over to Jesus Christ. So here's the better question that we need to ask today as we kind of land our plane. The question is this, how can we, how can I, how can we be better at loving other human beings who are sinful just like we are? There are three things I want to give you. The first is this. We have to first stop saying, and people, I've heard people say this, that Christians are that we are anti-gay or that the Bible is anti-gay. The Bible is not anti-gay. It's against those attractions manifested out in behavior and in lifestyle. And that's the important, in behavior and in lifestyle. See, it's like Christians are not anti-drunk. We're against drunkenness. We are not against the person who sins. Rather, we oppose the sinful behavior. Following Jesus' example, we love and we care for people regardless of their past or what's going on in their lives currently. Number two, don't treat homosexuality as the most detestable crime against God. Our, if you grew up in a Christian family, chances are you, like, their generation of Christians were terrible at this. Like they made like this sin, like the greatest sin that there possibly could be. And they had to create all these weird laws and things in church. If a gay person came, like uh, they can't do this, they can't do this. It, 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 we just did a terrible job with this. People who have had uh, same-sex attractions for the last 30, 40, 50, maybe a few hundred years have always thought that their sin was the greatest sin of all. Nowhere in Scripture does it teach that. It doesn't teach that anywhere. It doesn't teach that homosexuality is the greatest of sin of all. In fact, it is listed right alongside stealing and lusting, getting drunk, lying, and any type of premarital sex. That's what, it's listed in the same kind of continuum. And then finally, we need to stop calling homosexuality a choice. It's not. Although the behavior and the lifestyle manifest out in action is a choice, the attraction is not a choice. Oftentimes, the attraction, have you ever sat with somebody who's gay? Uh, growing up, my best friend was, uh, he's my next door neighbor as well, or lived across the street from me. Um, never once did he say that well, he chose this. Never once did he say, like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is who I want to be. Oftentimes, the attraction develops at a very young age, too early for it to be the byproduct or product of choice. And so here is kind of, here, here's the point of all this. God welcomes sinners no matter who they are and what, they, and what their backstory is. He welcomed me years ago when I was partying and watching porn, and he welcomes anyone on any spectrum of what their struggles are and what is going on in their lives. And he'll welcome you too, no matter what is going on in your life as well. And so as we wrap up today, I want to encourage you to know the truth and speak it with compassion. Because here is the truth, and here's the last thing I'll say. We don't get to change people. 
we can truthfully and lovingly point to a God that does change people, and he will. Let me pray for you guys, and then uh, I'll tell you what's happening right after service. Father, we are so thankful that you are a God that is one that is truth-telling, um, but one that's also compassionate and loving. And uh, God, we're allowed to come to you on any spectrum of where we are. And so, Father, I ask that you continue to help us be people that are both loving, but God, you would also fill our minds with truth and give us the conviction, God, to live out truthful and biblically accurate lives. So, Father, when it comes to this issue, would you help us be people of compassion and love people like you love people and love people well? Father, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening and have a blessed day.